You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come up to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from twenty years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. How about we pray together? Father, uh, thank you for an opportunity now to uh, hear your word, and we thank you that uh, your word never returns empty. And so we pray that by faith and in Christ's name, you would bear fruit in our hearts and in our minds and indeed our lives, uh, that we'd be a people 
living for you and loving you with all that we have. Uh, We thank you that you are in our midst. We thank you that you're our God and we thank you that you are good. And so be at work now for our good and your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, thank you, um, Mike and uh, team. It's wonderful uh, to be with you. Uh, It is, of course, a significant uh, day for our church. Um, uh, Thankful for Dave and and Ro and Dave for your words uh, earlier. Uh, I've known Dave and Ro now for over a decade, uh, and it was uh, the first interstate church uh, that we got to, to plant. Uh, and as Dave shared, um, the incredible, incredible work of God's goodness and grace. As you know, it's not easy planting a church, it's not easy leading a church. It comes with highs, it comes with lows. But in the midst of this, uh, God has been at work in forming uh, communities, uh, building new ministries. And by God's grace, we've seen many people go from death to life. And that really is uh, a work of God's grace. And I trust that that grace is a theme. Uh, that we hear and can celebrate uh, today. Uh, I do remember uh, being in Dave and Rose living room. It was like a million one degrees in 2015. Uh, they didn't have any aircon, and being from Melbourne and in skinny jeans, I was sweating it out. Uh, but here they were, you know, and just thankful um, for, for where God has been at work and um, for, for, for His grace in that. You know, I remember Dave's first sermon at City on a Hill uh, in his Hawaiian shirt with the Bible open and uh, as true to his form, keeping the gospel on repeat. So uh, again, just want to thank you, brother, um, and appreciate uh, God's hand of grace in your life and uh, pray that as you step into this new chapter, God continues to strengthen you both and your family. So can we thank the Lord uh, again uh, for Dave and Ro? Put our hands together for them. They're going to check out now because they're going to catch up with people in the foyer. So <laughs> I'll just signal that. Um, appreciate you guys. So if you've got a Bible handy, uh, we're going to continue in our series in Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, originally penned as one book. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to come with me there. Uh, it's a significant moment, isn't it, in salvation history where we read of God uh, delivering His people Israel out of Babylon and establishing them once more in Jerusalem and rebuilding their life and worship around Him. And we've called this series Rebuild. And in many ways, Rebuild not only captures what is happening in this moment of salvation history, but is so timely for us here today uh, as God seeks to rebuild us as His people in and around Him. And so as we explore today's text that we just heard in our reading, I want to make four observations uh, that I think uh, are true to the text, but also very timely and helpful for us together today. Does that sound good? Awesome. All right, if you've got a be- pen handy, uh, uh, here's the first one. Uh, number one, the rebuild is going to require an altar of our God. The rebuild requires an altar of our God. So the writer says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man in, uh, to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Jerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. The fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and burnt offerings in the evening. So in preparation for the temple... Uh, the people of Israel put their hands to work and built an altar for the Lord. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, God calls His people to set up an altar, which is to be a place of sacrifice and worship for Him. 
And significantly, there's only one place in the Old Testament where they're to establish an altar, and that is at the temple. Uh, All of which to say that the building of the altar is the first and crucial step in reordering and re-establishing their life and worship before God. And so here they are every morning, every night, going to this altar, which they've just built, uh, and sacrificing to the Lord. And usually they would take uh, an animal without blemish. This might be a bull, a goat, or a lamb. They would take it to the altar. Uh, They would then kill the animal. Its blood would be sprinkled across the altar. It would then be burnt, uh, and, and then the smoke would ascend to the heavens. Now, some of you may be wondering, why did they do this? Why would they go every morning and every night to sacrifice animals in this way? Well, it's important to appreciate that in the ancient world, the people of Israel needed a way to deal with their sin. The people of Israel needed a way to deal with their sin. Uh, I'm sure you'd agree that sin uh, not only harms the environment and fractures relationships, but is actually a private, personal and public uh, betrayal of God. And God, He is holy. God is righteous. And God in His holiness and righteousness cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He is just. Uh, In fact, the Bible tells us elsewhere that the wages of sin is death. So what is God to do with a people who continue to stumble and fall in sin? Is He to turn His back on them? No, as a means of grace to Israel, He establishes a sacrificial system, right? A system whereby they can take an animal to serve as a substitute for them and to pay the price that their sin deserves, namely death. Right? So as the blood is spilt, they are dealing with their sin and they are reconciling with God. In fact, that's why we call it a sacrifice of atonement, because in the sacrifice they are made at one with God. Right? So this is really important to see in Ezra. The people of God are not only just returning to Jerusalem, they are once more reconciling back to God. You need to appreciate just how significant that is when you consider just how long it had been since they had an altar. The people of God were in Babylon. Do you know how long? 70 years. 70 years without an altar. 70 years without a temple. 70 years they were walking in their sin and carrying their shame and under their guilt. And yet here in the book of Ezra, we see for the first time in a long time, the altar built, the blood is poured out, and reconciliation begins. It's an incredible moment. And I hope you can see, for those of us who are on the other side of the cross, uh, just how significant the salvation that we have in Christ, who is the true and better and perfect sacrifice, the true and better altar. Remember John the Baptist and prophet of God, he sees Jesus, and for the very first time, do you remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think it was John Stott who said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 
You know, in the Old Testament, you have, and in the book of Ezra, you have them going to the altar by morning, by night, and then perhaps they sin some more, so they go again to the altar by morning, by night. But in Jesus, we have a perfect sacrifice. We have the one who went to the cross and said, it is finished. Jesus is our true and better and perfect sacrifice of atonement. In other words, in Jesus, we not only have our debt cleared, but reconciliation is made. And it is the good news of Jesus that reconciles us to God and gives us the power now to entrust ourselves to Him. Instead of running in sin or holding on to sin, in Jesus we can approach the throne of God's grace with boldness. I was listening to an interview um, a couple of weeks ago about a former pilot uh, for Qantas. Uh, name is uh, Captain Graham Hood, and um, he's had a very successful career, you know, traveling the world and um, all of those things. But he opened up in this interview about his upbringing, which he explained uh, was very uh, difficult, uh, a traumatic upbringing, a lot of dysfunction and a lot of chaos. Uh, he explains that his older brother left his home when he was about five years of age, um, and his family. They were once living in the red light district in Sydney. Uh, They ended up moving out into like a more rural area and they lived in a caravan, a 15-foot caravan. And he said the the, the dysfunction of his family and the chaos just intensified. And there he was as a young kid in that caravan. And he explains that before he went to high school, he got a severe fever. And he was locked in there for something like six months, many months, nowhere to go. And he says that out of boredom, he went exploring and he happened to stumble across a book of uh, a box of adult magazines, and he shares the, uh, the 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 difficulty of how that activated something within him. Uh, looking through that, you know, he 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 he, dis- he was disgusted in what he saw, but also addicted to it and couldn't escape from it. Uh, in his own words, he he says. Um, I remember feeling abject disgust with myself. I couldn't stop watching. I became addicted very quickly. Uh, He then goes on in his flying career. Uh, He has a successful career. He gets married. Uh, He thinks, uh, if I got married, my addiction would go away. But he says this was falsehood. I brought two beautiful children in the world, but lived in dysfunction for 30 years. And eventually the marriage dissolved and his addiction got worse. And then he says that one night he hit rock bottom. Uh, he was on his laptop, uh, once more feeding his addiction. And this is what he says. He says, I was in my study on my computer when I saw the reflection of my 12-year-old daughter in the screen of my computer. To her, I was a hero. And I'll never forget the look in her eyes. And I thought that would end it for me. I thought I would stop and I promised I would. But with no foundation for the promise, I found myself two days later back into it again. Is there any hope for those stuck in sin? Graham says, yes. He goes on to say, I spent decades seeking a way out and couldn't find it. I tried self-help, group counseling, seminars, all those things seemed to work for a little while, but they all faded out. And I recognized I was trying to do this in my own power and my own power was not enough. I needed someone who had a greater power than the power of the addiction that was driving me. And for me, that power was Jesus. 
He says, I explored Jesus and I discovered that a man I'd never met 2,000 years ago died the worst possible death on the cross so that a filthy porn addict like me could have a second chance. He has the power to take it away. The power is there. It's always there. Whenever I need it, Jesus is there. You hear what he is sharing? Do you hear the power of the gospel that is available to you in Jesus? So very important when it comes to this call to rebuild. You know, I'm excited by what I see. I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to, with anticipation to what is ahead on the horizon. You know, as we see more churches planted and communities formed and all of those things are great and wonderful. But none of that matters if we've not surrendered our hearts first to Jesus, that if we've not yielded to Him and His grace, Jesus doesn't just want a part of your life, He wants all of your life. He wants to renew your mind. He wants to renew your heart. He wants to renew your relationship. And that renewal always starts at the altar of His grace. It starts in repentance. It starts with a turning away from sin and entrusting ourselves to the good news of the gospel. So that's the first observation to make today, that the rebuild involves a coming to the altar. But also, number two, the rebuild requires obedience to God's word. The rebuild requires obedience to God's word. Have a look at this, verse two. We're told they built the altar of the God of Israel to, burnt, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. And then in again, verse 4, the writer says, they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. So this is really interesting. In rebuilding their life and worship in Jerusalem, we are told that the people of God were seeking to align their lives and build according to God's Word. Right, so you've got to imagine the scene. They've got cement mixers out. People are clearing out rubble. Others are lining up the bricks. And as they are doing that, people have their Bibles open and they're trying to do it in accordance with God's Word. And that's significant because Israel have known the peril of leaning on their own understanding. They have known the foolishness of trying to do life in their own strength. They know the consequences of ignoring God's word. And yet here, for the first time in a long time, they're saying enough is enough. If we're going to rebuild our lives, if we're going to rebuild this city, if we're going to rebuild the temple, we want to be doing so in line with God's word. We don't just want to hear God's word. We want to obey it and see it fulfilled. And I hope you can realize that uh, this is incredibly relevant. For you and I today, because we're living in a culture, aren't we, um, that is marked by so many competing ideologies and different worldviews that are all vying for your attention, all telling you how you should live, all trying to convince you how you should build your life. We at City on a Hill are seeking to continue to be a people of God's Word, just as the people in uh, Ezra had their Bibles open and were living according to God's Word, so we are to be a people of God's Word, a people who trust God's Word, no matter what the surrounding culture is saying. I remember many years ago now, 
uh, in one of our very first newcomer evenings in Melbourne, a, uh, a visitor uh, who just started coming to the church came up to me and he said, Guy, I love the church, it's great music, good community, love the preaching, but can I give you some advice? He says, Melbourne is a very progressive city. And I think it would be much better if you would stop preaching about this idea that Jesus rose from the dead literally. This is a progressive city, progressive country. It would be far better for you if you start talking about Jesus, not rising literally or historically, but just say that Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. Do that and you'll bring in more people. To which I'm like, bring in more people to what exactly? Right? Here's the deal. As we move forward as a church, we will continue to be a people of the word. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy? Preach the word in season and out of season. What does in season mean? In season is when people come to church early, they've got their Bibles open. They're eager to be engaged. If they're Pentecostal, they're yelling out, Amen. Amen. <laughs> right? If they're Anglican, they're nodding politely. That's in season. Out of season is when people don't turn up. Out of season is when they've got their Bibles closed. Out of season is when they're kind of swaying towards what they think they want to hear from the culture. It doesn't matter for Paul. It doesn't matter for the early church. It should not matter for you and me because we preach the word in season and out of season. Like the people, the men and women in Ezra, we want to have the Bibles open. How do I build my life in light of the Scriptures? And this is more than just what we do on a Sunday, right? It's more than just to preach on a Sunday. This has got to characterize our lives. When you get together in your gospel community, when you call up a mate to hang out, when someone's going through a difficult season, a great season, be a man, be a woman of the word. Have the Bible open. Trust it. Know that this is how God wants to establish his kingdom in and through you. That's the second observation. You ready for the third? All right, two people. Great. Number three, the rebuild requires all hands on deck. The rebuild requires all hands on deck. So verse 1, the writer says, With the coming of the seventh month, while the Israelites were in the towns, they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. Or you could say one person in Jerusalem. And just briefly want to underscore that because it signifies the unity that God had established among the men and women of Israel. Seventy years they'd been in exile. Seventy years of uh, dissatisfaction and division and disappointment. And yet here, for the first time in a long time, they are made one. And again, you can't help but feel how significant that is for us today. You know, we're living so much, uh, so much more in a culture of outrage and, and, and division and divide. And sometimes that seeps into the church. We're called to be one. You think about what God wants for this church in the future. There's a call to be one. In fact, if you get a window into the prayer of Jesus, what does he pray? That you'd be one. And that oneness is typified for the men and women in Ezra, not only that the gathering together, but in their willingness to roll up their sleeves and get to 
work. In verse 2, we see Jeshua with his fellow priests and his kinsmen working together to build the altar. Then in verse 8, all the way through to the end of our reading, we see various families, various leaders getting involved to build God's house. And I love that. And I find it so countercultural. You know, we live in a day, don't we, that has elevated the idol of self so incredibly high that it's so tempting, isn't it, to think that the world just revolves around me, right? You go outside and all the marketing and messaging, right, positions you at the center. You walk around, it's like, oh, life's all about me and my needs and my desires and my wants. And sometimes that idol of self can, can seep into the church, We start treating God and faith and our church a bit like a spiritual vending machine. You know, you you kind of go to church expecting that it'll kind of type in a few buttons. You'll get out the the products that you want to meet your needs and your desires. You know, I'd like a church with great kids ministry. Or I'd like a church with amazing, inspiring worship. I'd like a church that is really large, or I'd like a church that's really small, or I'd like a church that talks about this, these issues, or I'd like a church, right, and on and on we could go. And there's nothing, let me, let me be honest here, there's nothing wrong about having aspirations and vision for your church. It's good to, I, I've got four kids, I really want to have a great kids ministry, right? I, I love, you know, love uh, worship and want people to lead us in inspiring, authentic worship, and of course, teaching. Like, these are all things that we can want and desire for our church. But there's a big difference between the person who sees these as products that should fall into your lap versus bricks you're called to build, right? We, the church, are called to establish the things that matter to God and that serve our world. You want to see a church that's serving the poor and the outreach, uh, serving the poor and the outcasts? Well, we do that together. You want a church with rich, meaningful community? then we each take responsibility for that to cross the gap and and build that community. We want to be a culture that values the Word. Well, then we open God's Word and we do that together, right? We build this together. That's why we have lots to thank God for, for this very church. There's volunteers, men, women across the church helping out with city kids, helping out with welcome, helping out with music and, and gospel communities. By show of hands, if you serve in any way, could you just raise a hand for me? Have a look around, guys. Look at all these hands. Let's praise the Lord for these guys. Thank you. So very important what you do in making this church who it is, right? We're called to be a city on a hill. This city is not finished. There's more light to shine, more that we can do. So let me just encourage you as you think about the next season to think about how you could serve. God has gifted you. God has equipped you. By His Spirit, He's empowered you to make a difference. Let's continue to lean in on that and be the people God has called us to be. Final point uh, as we land this plane. Fourth point, the rebuild is marked by tears and joy. The rebuild is marked by tears and joy. So really, really intriguing scene uh, as the this chapter ends. Verse 10, the narrator says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good 
for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout with the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So it's a curious scene, isn't it? We begin by considering the sound of these older men who look and see the foundations and they weep. There's lament in those tears. Uh, You say, why? Why would they be crying at such a historic moment? Well, it could be because they're comparing this foundation with the foundation of the previous temple under Solomon, which was an incredible building. Maybe they lamented the disparity there. But I suspect it's more than just the structure itself, but what this foundation signifies, namely loss. Um, This is a people who have witnessed with their own eyes better days. Perhaps these old men are thinking back to the day Solomon's temple stood and the people gathered in worship and the glory of God was there and present and celebrated. And yet they know on account of their own sin that that was lost. They know on account of their own foolishness and rebellion that the temple came down. They were exiled. And so perhaps standing at the the laying of the new foundation, they are brought back to the sorrow and sadness of their own sin. It's a bit like the woman in Luke's gospel who comes to the feet of Jesus. And we're told that upon arriving at the feet of Jesus, she weeps. There's tears of lament. And for those of you who've given thought to your own sin, you know, when we come to the cross of Christ, there there, there can be a a weeping of our heart as we consider what it cost our Saviour to go to the cross. So as Christians, when we gather in worship, there should always be room, invitation for lament, for grieving, to looking back at what was lost and bringing those tears to the Lord. The Psalms invite that kind of reflection. But if you're in Christ today, that tear of sorrow can go hand in hand with tears of joy and celebration. You know, just as we see in Ezra, here there are some who are weeping, but clearly there are many who are rejoicing. All right. In fact, if you look over the text, you'll see there's all of these um, statements about loud singing and trumpets and, and cymbals and loud shouts that are heard far, far and far away. Why? Because as that foundation goes down, they are seeing for the first time in a long time a new season of God's goodness, a new season of God's grace. Now is the time to rebuild. And they're celebrating that. They are thankful for that. And if you're in Christ today, I want you to set Jesus at the center of your heart and remember who he is and what he has done. To be thankful for him, to be encouraged, because in Jesus, we have reason to celebrate. We have a reason to lift our voices and praise him. I remember um, one of my favorite uh, Easter moments 
Uh, I was with my wife and uh, we visited a, a small country church on the east coast of Australia. And it was one of those services, it was very hot, you saw the fans going around, and it was one of those services where it just felt like people were going through the motions. Have you ever been part of a service like that? One hand, I saw that hand. <laughs> honest enough, honest hand. Uh, and it was like people just going through the motions, and the minister was going through the motions, and people were like looking at their watch, waiting for the thing to end. <laughs> and then midway through the service, when everyone was about to nod off, I kid you not, this one guy stands to his feet during the service, and says at the loud, at his loud, loud voice, he says, could somebody get excited? <laughs> right? Mid-service, could somebody get excited? So much passion and disgust in one sentence. I kid you not, he says this, and then he just leaves. <laughs> Mid-service. And everyone's like, what? You know, and they go on. And, you know. Anyway, at the end of the service, over morning tea and pavlova and all those kinds of things, um, he came back, and I saw him. I'm like, this is a guy I've got to meet. <laughs> so I go up to him, and I'm like, mate, what happened? He says, oh, I just had to go to the local fish and chip shop and tell somebody about Jesus. <laughs> right? I thought, wow, this guy is a little crazy, but crazy in a way that challenges me. <laughs> like he, he gets it. He gets the joy of our salvation. And I sometimes forget that. Sometimes I forget what life was like for me when I didn't know Jesus. Sometimes I forget what it was like trying to live at the center of a universe that you're not supposed to live at the center of. Sometimes I forget the joy of the salvation that is ours. I mean, think about it. Right now, if you're in Jesus, you are secure in the life and love of God. And nothing can take that away. Doesn't matter what's in your rearview mirror. Doesn't matter what's ahead for you this week or the months or years does not matter what comes your way. There is nothing that can take away the love of God and the union you have in Christ. You're secure in Him. That means you have love. That means you have value. That means you have a future. That means you have this living hope. That's life changing. That's city changing, right? There's a joy in knowing Jesus. And so we... Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.